Welcome to the Heathen History Podcast. My name's Lauren. And I'm Ben. And this is the first time we've actually recorded this podcast not sitting across from each other. Yay, social distancing. Well, it's a little weird. We did do that Drunken Heathen History Podcast. Okay, it's the first time we've done this podcast sober. Right. <laughs> and not across from each other. Right, right. Although, to be fair, troth moot, we were sitting next to each other. But still, yeah. Right. Uh, so what did we talk about on that podcast? Because I'm not entirely sure I remember. Naked Germans. Oh, right, right. Naked. Oh, God, it's the naked Germans. Yeah, naked Germans all over the place. We talked about Fidus, and we talked about the Natural Mention, the Nature Boys, and this big movement in Germany called Lebensreform, which was all about everything from astrology to Eastern religion to vegetarianism, to um, nudism. So yeah, Germany had the rudest, nudist Buddhist. Something like that. If any of them played the flute, they'd be the rudest, nudist Buddhist flutist. If any of them were super vegan, they could be raw foodist, rudist, nudist, flutist, Buddhists. Why am I suddenly having flashbacks to Dr. Seuss? I don't know. So anyway, that was our last episode that just came out. And Praise to our editor who actually edited that for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I hope we can pay him a little extra. Oh, oh, Robin, you're you're a saint. What can I say? So this week we are talking about a controversial figure, but I would say arguably one of the first people who at least paid lip service to some sort of idea in the modern era that they were worshiping Odin. And that, of course, is Guido von Liszt. Mm -hmm. I've got a little list. <laughs> so, right. And so he's an interesting guy. And mm -hmm. a lot of his stuff is going to lead into things like Arod Mills. And it's going to lead into just a lot of stuff that we've talked about in the past. You can find his fingerprints on. And it leads a heck of a lot into modern rune magic and mysticism as it's practiced in Ausatru, primarily through the work of Stephen Flowers, a.k.a. Edward Thorson, who was heavily influenced by List and List followers in uh, writing his books uh, Futhark and Rune Lore and At the Well of Weird or Runecaster's Handbook. A lot of what he presents in there is drawn from List and the people who followed him. So what you're really saying is thousands of mediocre pagan pride presentations all came from this. Yeah, probably. Pretty much. All right. And a couple of spectacularly bad ones. You still remember the, uh, the, the guy at the pagan pride in Arkansas years ago who was going on and on about the Armenian runes? Yeah, that was the one that I think you and I had a real, real hard time not just busting a gut. Yeah. And that was, we were baby heathens back then. <laughs> I think that was, two, what, 2004? Something like that. But, you know, I think we could still recognize what we were smelling. Oh, yeah. And the thing is, is the guy fully bought in and believed it. That was yeah. the thing. I'm not 
I'm not like super angry at the guy or anything. He totally bought in. But mm. so speaking of runes, to really give Guido, which I'm sorry, I say it and I immediately think Jersey Shore, but that's another story. To give him the full context that this deserves, we're going to talk a little bit about kind of the modern-ish history of runes. Mm-hmm. So, Ben, I believe that starts in Sweden. Yeah, and I think we talked about these guys in a previous podcast, did we not? Sweden is... Very briefly. Yeah. Sweden becomes a world power in the 1500s and 1600s. And, you know, there is a movement called Storgoticism, uh, Great Gothicism, uh, which claims that Sweden was the home of the Goths. Uh, we now know that's incorrect. Sweden is not the home of the Goths. It's the home of the death metal heads. I think I've, we've kind of made that joke before. But the idea was taken quite seriously that Sweden was the oldest nation in the world and had civilized everyone and been the origin of everything and was older than anything except possibly, you know, the Hebrews, because you have to start with Noah and the Ark and all that. And don't forget the Hebrews. The who? The Hebrews. Oh, the right. Hebrews. Right. You guys are Hebrews. Sorry. So, yeah, they pushed this idea that Sweden was, in fact, Atlantis. Right. And I just have a hard time with the whole tropical nature of Atlantis that I, I remember in Sweden, but that's beside the point. Right. But, yeah, it's like, if you remember the Mike Myers bit from Saturday Night Live, it's like, welcome to all things Swedish. If it's not Swedish, it's crap. Yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. So this whole thing happens, and then people kind of forgot about it. Suddenly it wasn't hip anymore to be all obsessed with the runes and with the Scandalantis. Right. It had been started by this guy in Sweden named Johannes Boreas, who was one of the first, born in 1568, died in 1652, one of the first scholars to try to systematically study ancient runestones, which had been sitting around since, you know, the Viking or early medieval years. And Sweden and Denmark actually had kind of a rivalry on. Sweden and Denmark are actually the two countries that have fought the largest number of wars against each other, which seems a little strange if you look at them now, but they used to be bitter rivals and Boreas's rival in Denmark was Olaus Vormius, the first people to really systematically collect data on runestones and try to read the inscriptions. Vormius was a pretty good scientist. Boreas was a mystic who developed this mystical interpretation of runes called the Adal Runa that was very much similar to Kabbalah, which we'll actually come back to. So did I have to ring, wear a red string bracelet then to understand the runes? I haven't found that. Although I, I did find one of Boreas's notebooks that's actually been digitized and is available. It's interesting. Yeah. People, you know. So these guys do this. And so we start getting people who are actually like grab, grabbing some scholarship. Right. Yeah, this eventually gets abandoned. Various scholars start suggesting that the runes are modified from the Greek or the Latin alphabet, you know, because Rytho, let's face it, looks exactly like a very angular R, and 
Fehu looks like an F and Uruz looks like an upside down U and so on. But in 1832, a Swedish dude named Johan Lidiagren proposed that the runes were an indigenous development. They had appeared in Scandinavia, and despite superficial similarities, they weren't derived from any other alphabet. And he and others looked at Bronze Age rock art, of which there is a heck of a lot in Sweden, and that includes geometric symbols as well as figures of humans and animals and boats and things like that, and proposed that this might have been the origin of the runes, and that the runes started out as an ideographic symbol, meaning each symbol stands for a word or an idea or a concept, uh, like hieroglyphics, Yeah, and then later got whittled down to, to an alphabet. And so you had some people who were supporting this. Right. You have Rokas von Lillenkron. Mm-hmm. I hope I said that right, my dear. And Carl Mulehoff, who kind of supported this idea. And right. on the other hand, you have Ludwig Wilmer or Vilmer, who is like, uh, no, is like, boom, pew, 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 and killed that idea pretty quick. Right. Yeah. Lillian Krohn and especially Mullerhoff were professors. I think Mullerhoff was at University of Kiel. And Mullerhoff became one of the most respected authorities on German prehistory. And they advocated this indigenous origin theory. Ludwig Wimmer pretty much demolished it in the 1890s. At most, you might find some people today that think that the petroglyphs could have had some slight influence on the shape of the runes, but no one in serious academic circles thinks that the runes, you know, popped into existence in Germany or Scandinavia. But Wimmer was a little bit too late. Uh, the idea had already taken root in Germany by, you know, a lot of popularizers had picked up on Lillian Krohn and Müllerhof. And One of the cool things was that runes used to be known only from Scandinavia, and it wasn't until the 1850s that anybody found rune inscriptions in Germany. Germany didn't, for whatever reason, I'm not sure why, they didn't go in for carving them on great big stones the way they did in Scandinavia and to some extent in England. And it wasn't until the 1850s that somebody found, you know, I think there were belt buckles and artifacts and things like that with with runes on them. But that was very exciting to find out that the runes were known in Germany as well as in Scandinavia. They're part of the common heritage of all Germanic peoples. You know, they're ours too, they're German and we have the runes. So that gives you this surge of popularity, and a guy who serves it, surfs that wave, is avid reader of popular works based on Müllerhof and Lillian Kohn, is a guy by the name of Guido List. Now, Guido List was born the 5th of October, 1848, in Vienna. His family was, you know, pretty upper middle class. His dad was Carl. He was a leather goods dealer. His mother was Marion Killian, mm-hmm. and 
Guido von List was, or at the time, Guido List, we'll get there in a minute, was raised Roman Catholic. His family had country estates. And so as a kid, because of his family's relative prosperity, they were able to travel. So he was exposed to a lot more historical buildings and monuments and stuff than your average bear at that time. Right. And that led to a huge interest in mythology and history. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he went down to the catacombs of St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna. And and became obsessed that this this whole place was just a ruined pagan temple. Mm -hmm. I'm assuming it probably is not, but. I I think he, he is alone in that assertion. All right. And this thing here is that that this is all happening in these ideas. Keep in mind when we say that he he comes there and he thinks this, he's a 12, 13-year-old at this point. He's not an adult. Mm-hmm. So 1862, he's 14 years old, and he goes and he swears an oath to construct a temple to Wotan at 14. Don't you mean he constructs swears an oath to construct a temple to Wotan? Probably. Sorry, I, I think we have to do that in every episode. We do. So, in addition to you know his exposure to kind of cultural and historical sites, he was like a super big into the outdoors. Which, if you listen to our last drunken episode, was kind of a thing in that time. Mm-hmm. So he's able to, you know, he spends his time in the mountains and he would spend his midsummer at Geiselberg Hill Fort. And then in 1875, he and a bunch of friends decide that they're going to go row to an ancient Roman town on the Danube, which is called uh, Carnutum. Carnutum, thank you. Which, you know, today is on the Austria-Hungary border. It was a fort that was built uh, about six years CE. And then a town kind of grew up around it until it was destroyed in 376. Rebuilt again and then abandoned. So... Right. Yeah. Not just a fort. It was a trading town. It was on the old Amber Road, which had been there for, you know, something like the previous... 1500 years, Amber would get picked up on the Baltic shores and head south and go down that way and uh, come down to ports on the Adriatic Sea, and it would pass through Carnuntum. So the town is now a, a really big site. There's the remains of an amphitheater. About 10 years ago, they found the remains of a, a actually a training school for gladiators. It's a pretty major Roman site, and one of the attractions there is now called the Pagan Gate. Uh, It's an old Roman triumphal arch built by Emperor Constantine II. Right. That comes into our story here. So Guido and his buddies go, and they're going to go commemorate the 1500th anniversary of a battle at this fort where the German tribes defeated the Roman army. So. His buddies show up and they start a bonfire and his buddies are all go and drink. And he goes and decides to 
celebrate this event of this great triumph of the German army by burying eight bottles of wine under the pagan gate in the shape of a swastika. Right. Because that makes, that's a perfectly good use for wine. Yeah. I mean, really? So the pattern that, that we're seeing here with him is from an early age, he's kind of had this slight fascination, we'll call it. We'll be generous. Right. With these historical, you know, German gods, pagans. He, he, he kind of sees pagans everywhere. Right. A little bit of background as to why he put those bottles of wine in the shape of a swastika. Swastikas had been known from, you know, German and Norse art usually in German called the Hockenkreuz, you know, the uh, the bent cross. And right about this time is when people like uh, Helena Blavatsky, who founded Theosophy, which we'll get to in the next episode, were discovering the ancient wisdom of India and discovering that in India, the swastika was a symbol of, of good luck. A few years ago, we had a uh, at the department where I work. One of my colleagues was from India, a very broad-minded guy. He held the departmental Christmas party, despite being a Sikh. But the decorations that he had up included swastikas, and it's a tiny bit off-putting until you remember that you know in India, it's still considered a good luck symbol. It doesn't have the negative associations that it tends to in the West. So this was being discovered, and a German archaeologist named Heinrich Schliemann had been excavating the site of the ancient city of Troy and apparently wrecking most of it. He did kind of a hatchet job on it. Would you call it rexcavating? Yeah, okay, good one. Yeah, he had uh, rexcavated the ruins of Troy, and had found a bunch of swastikas. It was a symbol of, you know, presumably, you know, good luck and good fortune in the earliest uh, stages of uh, Greek civilization as well. And so people were starting to call the swastika, because you find it in India, Greece, and Scandinavia, as an ancient holy symbol of, you know, what at the time was called the Aryan race, by which people meant the Indo-Europeans. And by the way, the Europeans originated in Germany and Scandinavia and spread out that way. At least that's what many people thought at the time. Well, of course, because Sweden was the oldest civilization. Duh. Right. Yeah. You see this rebirth of the idea that, um, civilization and enlightenment and all good things ultimately come from the North. And that gets caught up in this uh, nationalistic fervor that Germany is going through right now. You have people quite happy to believe that Germany, you know, was in fact the cradle of world civilization and, you know, that the Germans had had this superior understanding before anybody else did. And the swastika was a symbol of that. Well, you know the Germans. They make good stuff. Right, right. <laughs> so Mr. Least goes into the family business after his father dies, but doesn't really want to. His heart was not in leather. So he goes into the business and then kind of leaves. So he marries his first wife on the 26th of September, 
1878. Her name was Elena. Helena Forster Peters. Mm-hmm. So in this time period here, he starts writing for a few nationalist magazines. He writes for a whole list of them. In fact, I'm going to read the English names because I could bring the German, but they're not going to mean much to most of our listeners as this is an English podcast. New World, Homeland, one called German Newspaper, which I, I applaud the originality, and the New German Alpine Newspaper. Most of his writing had a very narrow focus, we could say, where he is writing about Austrian folk customs and the pagan origins of place names. Right. Yeah, very much into you know, the Germanic history of Austria and the mythology that you can still sense around you in the landscape. Yes, which there's some validity to that. I know even now when we talk about when there's discussion about the worship of the gods, a lot of that when you talk about the geographic is, you know, especially when you talk about Scandinavia place names with Frey or Thor or, or, you know, there's, there's definitely a, some validity to that discussion. Right, right. So then in 1808, he publishes his first really big literary success, a novel called Carnuntum, which is set in the very fort where he'd celebrated the pagan gate ritual. And this is what kind of put him on the map especially in the pan-Germanic movement. And if we back up just a little bit, we've talked about this before, but remember that before Napoleon, Germany had been this patchwork of states and ruled by you know the Holy Roman Emperor, who was not holy and not Roman and sometimes not much of an emperor, And for a long time, the emperor had come from the Habsburg family, which ruled Austria and other possessions in its own right, but also kept getting chosen to be the overlord of the Holy Roman Empire. And I want to say chosen kind of becomes in quotation marks because a lot of times they were chosen by holding the Pope hostage. Right, right. I was reading quite a bit about the conflicts between Spain and France a few weeks ago, so. Right. Anyway, so the empire falls apart in the aftermath of Napoleon, and the Habsburgs continue to rule the Austro-Hungarian Empire. The rest of the old Holy Roman Empire forms the confederations of states with Prussia taking the lead, and there was a movement to try to unite all of the German-speaking areas of Europe, Austria and Germany, into one greater Germany The problem is Prussia wanted to rule the whole thing, and the Habsburgs said, no way, Jose. And in 1848, uh, the people said, what about ruling the whole thing under a democratic government? And Prussia and Austria immediately put aside their differences and said, to heck with that. So the democratic movement fizzled out. And after fighting a minor war in 1869... Uh, it was decided that the countries were going to be separate, and you end up with Germany in 1871, separate from you know Austria in the Austro-Hungarian Empire. But there were still people that really wished that the countries could be unified, and of course, a fellow named Adolf Hitler would eventually succeed 
for a time in doing exactly that and uniting all of the lands where German was spoken. But that idea of a, a greater Germany, Großdeutschland, was actually proposed by a lot of people at the time, and Liszt was certainly one of them. So he actually came kind of a big deal in this Austrian pan-Germanic movement. And uh, because of this, he goes to meet this particular man of the name of Frederick Wannick, or Wannick. Right. Yeah. And remember that name? Remember my butchering of the pronunciation? We'll come back to him. Mm -hmm. So important thing to know. So we hit the 1890s and he's in kind of a full tilt, full on hardcore moving forward with paganism and publishing. And he's written all these essays for these various and sundry magazines. So they all get combined into one book, the German mythological landscape scenes or Deutsch mythologische Landschaftsbilder. Exactly. Right. And then he starts lecturing on German paganism about 1893. And also on that time, he went super anti-Semitic mm -hmm. and wrote, wrote an article. Ben, you're going to have to pronounce this one because that's, yeah, I'm not even going to try. Die Juden als Staat und Nation. The Jews as a state and a nation. That's one of the ones I didn't even bother Googling and reading anything about it because mm -hmm. I figured that's that's an all I need to know about that. Right. Well, anti-Semitism was only slightly less common than than a head cold back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know much about this work, but I'm I'm sure it wasn't really unusual for the time. Anti-Semitism in German goes all the way back to uh, Protestant Reformation, so. Hey, that's another episode. You can go back and listen to our episode on the Protestant Reformation. <laughs> yeah. And listen to us sing, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Yes. So he goes and he founds this Danubian Literary Society. And um, it was one of these societies. It was devoted to encouraging German nationalist and neo-romantic literature in Vienna. Mm-hmm. The group was partially based on some 15th century uh, literary groups that were put forth towards by the humanist Conrad Keltis, who was one of Tacitus's earliest fanboys back in the 1400s. And that's another episode you could go back and actually, I think that's in the Protestant yeah. Reformation too, right? Yes, it is. Yes. Mm -hmm. All right. And in 1894, he writes and produces a drama called Der Vala Erweckung. The Vala's Awakening, Vala being, uh, I think that's an alternate form of uh, Vulva, the, the seeress. Yes. And actually his second wife is the actress who plays the leading role of, uh, of the Vala. And um, yeah, so that's a little bit of, of trivia there, that his second wife was, was the actress in his play in 1894, He's got a pretty good reputation as a writer. He's you know, good at writing novels and things like that. You know, he's not some hack. He gets quite popular. His works get well-reviewed elsewhere. And in 1898, he published this thing. And I actually spent a good chunk of the day uh, translating parts of it so that you don't have to. And it's called Der Unbesiegbare, 
which is German for the invincible. And it's a catechism. Its subtitle is, I think, Foundations of a Germanic Worldview. But it's presented as, you know, rather similar to the, um, the, the shorter catechism of Martin Luther, the series of questions and answers that kids are supposed to memorize and then recite back to show that they've, that they've learned. And yeah, I've actually translated a uh, portion of it. And I want you to know that this was a colossal pain in the butt because A, I'm kind of slow at German. I can push my way through it, but I need a dictionary a lot. B, the thing was written in black letter font. And C, it's Guido List, all of which combined together to give me something of a migraine this afternoon. So I hope everybody appreciates this. So he asked the question, Wie hat Gott die Menschen erschaffen? How did God create humanity? And the answer is, just as God made the plants and animals of many different species from the very beginning, he also created us humans according to his wise will in several kinds of tribes from which the different Volker originated. There's that word, the Volk. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, and there's no really good English equivalent of the word Volk, means a people sort of quasi-mystically united by shared culture, language, and often some kind of spiritual essence as well. Actually, so what is a Volk, is the question he asks. Every larger union of people, which has its own language, writing, and history, is uniquely in sense, custom, and way of thinking, is called a Volk. And then he asks, why did God create the different Volker? And the answer is... So that life is preserved. Oh, what is life? Life is a battle, and the prize of the battle is life. Life is a highway. I want to ride it all night long. Whereas I read that and went, oh my God, did he like, did he go to the fortune cookie school of writing? Right. So if people could enjoy life without struggle, without work, and without all the trouble and worry that comes with life, everyone, provided there was enough food, would get sick and die of laziness. Yeah, it is stated in God's all-wise counsel that all the joys of this life must be achieved through diligence and work, and that which has been achieved will be defended with courage. God loves and protects hard-working, courageous Volko, who keep faith and justice in a holy way and rewards them with good and freedom. And all of a sudden, I'm starting to hear like Alan Jackson's country music Oh no 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 no! I'm I'm hearing this is pure like Bob Jones, circa nineteen seventy eight moral revival, moral majority right. speeches. So you're you're hearing Bob Jones, and I'm hearing George Jones. Yeah, pretty much. All right. So God sends them great men as a reward, who lead them to power, greatness, and wealth. We should respect and appreciate such God-gifted men, be they heroes, scholars, or artists, 
because God uses them as a tool to purify, instruct, and care for people. I know of a particular tool I can think of right now. Yeah, I've known some great men who are definitely tools. Exactly. Do not measure great men by the standard of the ordinary. Spare their mistakes and weaknesses, which they also have, and do not maliciously try to obscure their wonderful deeds. And here's the scary part. God turns away from lazy, cowardly, envious, and selfish peoples and punishes them with bondage and annihilation. Right. So there we go. I'm not going to lie. This is very, uh, this sounds a lot like uh, Protestant work ethic stuff to me, but you know. Right. Well, he goes on to present, you know, like A. Rudd Mills would do, he presents his own version of the Ten Commandments, which I'm not going to translate the whole thing, but his ninth was honor and protect the women, keep the family holy, and protect them from need and danger. And the Tenth Commandment is be faithful to your people and fatherland until death. Dun, dun, dun. Well. So, yeah, this very, very romantic ethnocentric nationalism that subordinates the wishes of the individual to the needs of the folk or the greater community. Very common at the time. List is certainly not the only person that's pushing this sort of thing. No. And he talks about God almost all the time in, um, you know, Der Unbesiegbare. And, you know, again, this is almost a parody of a Christian-style catechism, catechism. But in a couple of spots, he kind of lets his mask slip by mentioning that God can also be called the All-Father, he says somewhere, recognize the spark of God in yourself and look up to all father, the invincible. And somewhere about this time, he's developing this idea of God as a trinity, where the all father or the valfata, father of the slain, has this uh, triune aspect called Votan, Vili, and Ve, which is something he's borrowed out of, of Norse mythology. Yes. And again, a lot of the stuff that's coming out here is being couched in monotheistic language. People are talking about God, not necessarily the Christian God, but it's not very polytheistic in the idea that there really are multiple gods that are in some sense independent of each other. This is something that I think... We talked about on the Drunk Heathen History podcast uh, with people like Ludwig Fachenkrog and the GGG, who also writes yeah. kind of catechism, but spends all of his time talking about God as a sort of you know cosmic life force in the universe that incarnates in every German. You're not really getting polytheism here. You're getting this sort of you know deism or you know, monotheism or pantheism where God is basically the false, you know, the energy field made up of all living things. Yes. So he apparently needed to share that with people. Good on him, I guess. Right. Yeah, the, the cover of that catechism, uh, Der Unbesiegbare, 
has this really cool cover that looks like it could have come out of the 1960s with this uh, long-haired guy who, for some reason, has three carnations growing out of his head. And I'm not entirely sure why. Maybe when it comes time to post this episode, we can put that up as a teaser on the Facebook group. Yes, we do have the super secret Facebook group for our patrons where you can talk with us. So, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, if you're interested, you can get our Patreon. We'll have that information at the end of the episode. So 1902 rolls around and List has to have eye surgery that leaves him blind for 11 months and uh, empathy. Lots of it because I have uh, eye issues and was actually legally blind for about four years. Mm. So (laughs) a lot of empathy for that. So during that time, he does a lot of like when you're blind and you know, you don't, he didn't have the fun adaptive technologies I had. He, He did a lot of thinking. And a lot of that contemplation was on the German language and the runes. So he, once he is up and around again, he creates this great manuscript. This is kind of one of his, I guess you could call it great works. And uh, the kind of premise is there was a proto-language of the Aryan race, mm-hmm. a cult insight. So, you know, the super secret mysteries of the universe had given him the ability, and only him, I guess, to interpret the letters and sounds of both runes and emblems and glyphs found on ancient inscriptions. Right. He's truly got the secret runes. Yes. He he was given the only, you know, he has the secret of the runes, folks. So uh, he's so proud of this thing, and he sends it to the Imperial Academy of Science in Vienna, who declined to publish, because it was a big old pile of pseudoscience bullshit. (laughs) Although, remember that, you know, the guy is a popular writer. Yeah. You know, his ideas are winning acceptance, and when the Academy of Science sent it back to him without comment, a friend of his actually tried to intervene who was in the Austrian parliament. So, yeah, despite the fact that this work, which we'll talk about in a bit, because I read some of it too, you know, despite the fact that it is, in fact, a steaming pile of, you know, bovine feces, he's still got supporters, friends in high places, people who love his work and are willing to fund it and go to bat for it. Wow. So yeah, he publishes a portion of this manuscript in um, Diagnosis. Uh, Diagnosis. Yeah, it just means Diagnosis. Yeah. And uh, silly me trying to pronounce it. Yeah, wasn't Gnosis that planet uh, with the big battle where all the Jedi got killed in uh, Star Wars Episode 2? No. The, the one where... They start building the Death Star? No. No. Oh, okay. That must be something else. And also this time, he starts calling himself Guido Von Least. Now, Von is mm. a it is an honorific, essentially, that indicates that you are nobility. Now, he would claim that uh, his great-grandfather was nobility, but threw it all away to go open an, a, an inn. Because, of course... Of course. So mm-hmm. now the Vaughn became a very big part of his identity 
because he would use this to claim that because he was nobility, he had this this bloodline connection to an ancient Wotanist priesthood. Oh, uh, yes, the Armand. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he's now Guido von Liszt. And in 1908, they start the Liszt Society. And uh, it's established to promote his work. It's uh, funded by a very wealthy family that we mentioned up a, a little further back when he wrote his first book, The Wainick Family. And uh, they gave him an endowment of 3,000 crowns or about 11,000 euros, which at the time was a lot considering, right. you know, my great grandfather at this or great great grandfather at this time was the station master in Banks, Arkansas, and didn't make that much in like five years. Yeah, that's a pretty tidy sum, and it would go on to underwrite the publication of, uh, I think he ended up writing seven shorter Ariogermanic research reports. Yes. Discussing things like, you know, the Armanen and the ancient Votanic priesthood. There was one about looking at German heraldry, you know, coats of arms, and decoding them using you know, rune knowledge, folklore and place names and things like that. And those come out. No, no, no. Yeah. Ben, you're, you're missing a part of that whole heraldic thing. It was the secret messages in German heraldic devices. Right. Every, you have to remember, it's all about the secrets and the, <laughs> and the magical power of runes. Right. Remember that the Armanen priesthood was driven underground by the Christians but they continued their yeah. practices in secret, and uh, they would gather and dance skyclad around the Beltane fires and write things down in their Book of Shat. Wait, sorry, I'm getting this confused with Wicca. Yeah, it doesn't say that sounds like Gerald Gardner, but uh, who also wrote a novel about his beliefs, but that's another story. Right. So uh, he also, at this time, in midsummer of uh, 1911, he establishes the High Armenian Order, or the HAO. And um, this is a inner circle of Armenist practitioners. They went on pilgrimages to various places that he believed had been ancient cultic sites associated with the worship of Woden. And of course, he was the Grand Master. Right. Of course. Yeah. We don't know very much about what they did. Uh, they didn't write down a great deal of what they were doing, but they went back to the catacombs under Stephen's Cathedral, which Teenage List had been convinced was an ancient uh, pagan temple. And they visited various other places that were, you know, supposedly places of pagan worship in ancient time. And again, we don't know a lot about their activities, but that's what they were doing. So what so yeah let's let's talk for a minute what did we actually know that he was advocating here One thing he wrote was this idea that the ancient ways of the Aryans are still present in the landscape they'd been preserved of course by the Armanan secret order which after Christianization had survived in the Freemasons 
and the Knights Templars and the Roman Catholic priesthood and a bunch of other places, they had continued to preserve their ancient lore. And it had also been preserved in the folk beliefs of the sturdy, you know, peasant yeoman stock. But it was also imminent in the German landscape. And as he said, we must read with our souls the landscape that archaeology reconquers with the spade. If you want to lift the veil of mystery, you must fly into the loneliness of nature. So this whole ancient Aryan ways are not just present in the Armanan priesthood, they're encoded within the landscape itself, and that comes out of his uh, German mythological scenes that he'd written. Yes. So, of course, these this ancient priesthood went underground, and of course they did, and they were driven underground, and we're bringing back the one true religion. Mm-hmm. Wait, Gerald Gardner, where are you? Well, what, huh? Yeah. So, uh... Yeah, if this ancient knowledge had you know, could only be revitalized and allowed to thrive once again, it would make Germany great again. So he meets this con man also in this whole process named Tanhari or Ernst Lauderer, who listed saying he has these ancestral memories, right? Mm -hmm. And this guy conveniently has the exact same ones. Who'd have thunk? Yeah, funny how that sometimes seems to work out. And so he's also pushing forth these ideas about the runes. Yeah, you're reading this one, Ben. I'm not. Sorry. Okay. So the 700-page book that he writes is called Die Ursprache der Ario-Germanen und ihre Mysteriensprache. The Primordial Speech of the Ario-Germans and their mystery language. And I actually did plow through some of this, and I'll give you a sample. I'll tell you, the book is basically one giant migraine between covers. And what it does is breaks down language based on the system of the Armanen runes. Now, when List had been, you know, blinded and recovering from his cataract operation, he had come up with a uh, what he thought was the original version of the Futhark, and it's based on the Scandinavian version of the Futhark, the rune alphabet, which has 16 runes. List thought there should be 18, because that way that matches up with the number of uh, the rune spells that Odin says that he knows at the end of the Havamal. And if you want to get technical, there's actually 19 because he included two different versions of the O rune, one of them looking like Ansu's and one of them looking like Othala. So this is the 16 rune Futhark that has 18 runes, except there's technically 19. But anyway. Oh, but basically, if you can understand the rune symbols or the Kala, you can find the secret meaning of words. And here's what this is. You start with five vowels, they're A-E-I-O-U, and each one of those means a different aspect of divine power. A is 
divine power in its threefold nature, because List is very big on trinities. And well, threefold. So the threefold thing is pretty prevalent around most of the occultic things that you see of this era. So it wasn't just him. That whole concept, the threefold, you see that in ceremonial magic and Gnosticism. You see that in some of Crowley's work and then eventually trickles down into Gardner. So that was not an original thought for him. <laughs> that right. was pretty prevalent in occultism in the late 19th century. Right. For List, the threefold aspect of everything is everything is either coming into being or existing or passing away in order to come into being again. So, you know, and you can tie this... Still very 19th century occultism. <laughs> yeah, you can tie this to the norms and things like that. So on top of that threefold nature of everything, which he calls the Trophytic Triune Triad, the vowel A stands, letter A, stands for divine power in its threefold nature. The letter E, E, stands for law. The letter I, you know, the sound E stands for divine power as a unity. O stands for order made manifest in reality. And U, the letter U, stands for perfection or completion. And then you can combine those with the meanings of each consonant. So the rune letter B, you know, it would be Bercano in, you know, the Elder Futhark. He calls it Bar. And Bar in the Armani, sorry, the Armanin Futhark. I keep wanting to call it the Armani Futhark, which he kind of a designer runes. But Bar stands for becoming and birth. It can stand for concealment, and he also links it with songs. So you can take every one of the consonants and put it together with the vowels. So ba is, you know, becoming and birth, and it seems to mean the earth as well, combined with, you know, that's ba, and then a is divine power in its threefold nature. So ba stands for divine earthly witness to the order established with strength, power, will, ability, and action in the physical exterior, grounded upon the earth. And that shows up in words like Baal, which means empty, and Bach, which means brook, and Balda, which means bard, like a singer. And then Be is Ba, is becoming and birth, combined with law, so Be is the divine, natural, primordial procreation right of the earth in its physical exterior. So Be is in everything from Bein, meaning bone, to Berg, meaning mountain, to Bernstein, meaning amber, which I guess are all things that are born from the earth. Oh my god, I just realized that Berg is mountain, and yeah. you realize we have a town called Mountainberg. Mm-hmm. That's a redundant name. Oh my gosh, I never knew that. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> Lauren's random realizations on on heathen history. Well, Mountainburg is spelled with U. Burg is fortress. So Mountain Burg is... Okay, true. But still, sorry. Okay. Right. So then you have B.I. Yeah, B.I. is the earthborn or emerging from the earth, 
which appears in everything from beaten to offer to bilen to dress to biel, which is beer, which I guess is born and emerging from the earth. Yeah. The beer I've had kind of tastes like it too. And then bo is the divine spirit revealing itself on earth, which you find in everything from bot, meaning a commandment, to bon, a spring of water, to borer, which is a drill. And then bu is that which is perceptible to the senses of God, which appears materially and spiritually completed and ordered on the earth. And there you get burg, which is fortress, and buch, meaning a book or buchstabe, a letter. And so he goes through all of this, and I swear I'm giving you the tip of the iceberg, and that's only the meanings of ba, be, bi, bo, bu. And then he starts going through ab, eb, ib, ob, ub. And he does the 12 other letters. And as I've said, this is, like I said, it's a migraine between covers. I bet he was really fun at parties. Yeah, there is 700 flipping pages of this stuff. And the thing is, once you know these syllables, you can break down any language into its secret meanings. But you can also use these syllables to create mantras, you know, spoken or, you know, sub-vocalized formulas of magical power. So one that you'll see a lot, you know, all of the vowels have to do with divine power. And you can invoke that by chanting the names of the five vowels in the Armanan Futhark, which are A, E, Is, Os, Ur. So Arehisosur is an Armanan mantra. Now that I've said that, I was kind of waiting for like the, the room to shake and plaster to fall off the ceiling, but I guess not. I was going to say that that just sounds like something I would say as I'm falling down the stairs. Ah, oh, e, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You say that in the wrong order, and you might invoke Votan or something like that. <sighs> you know, I was thinking that if Bo is the syllable that means the divine spirit revealing itself on earth, you know, you could use that in an Armanan mantra, you know, a magical formula to summon the divine spirit on earth, which of course might be something like, blue moon. Yeah. You know, some of these things really look like doo-wop syllables and... All I could think was that, and I don't even know, like, was like, it's, it's starting to turn into like the sound of music, though, a deer, a female deer, but yeah. Mm, right. Except in this case, it would be, yo, da, de, di, do, do, ad, ed, id, od, ud, a deer, a female deer. Yeah. And then, ra, re, ri, ro, ru, ar, er, ir, or, ur, and, and yeah, I won't go through it any further, but that's what I spent a good morning doing, is reading that. Ra Re Ro Ru sounds like Scooby-Doo. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to look this up, figure out what rot row means. Right, yeah. Isn't that what he was always saying? rot Yes. So, there's also this idea of hope for the Stark von Oben, the strong one from above. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's this whole idea that there's going to be 
eventually, you know, one of these great men is going to come down as a gift from the Godhead who will lead you know, the Aryans to a, um, you know, brighter future. Uh, somewhere he writes something about, uh, you know, the lightning of Donner will once again flash from our battleship turrets or something like that. You know, he's kind of itching for war. And uh, this is going to be led by the Stalker von Oben, the strong one from above. In the introduction to that 700-page horror, Die Urspracke der Ario Germanen, he ends it by saying, but nonetheless, it is time today to lift the veil of Sais. That was an ancient Egyptian statue of Isis that supposedly knew everything, but no one could lift her veil. And it was a metaphor for revealing hidden mysteries. It is time today to lift the veil of Sais because it will prompt many to search for the lost master word. And some will also find it to greet the arriving strong one from above. So Least is full of a lot of, I would call, high ideas. He, he's an idea man. He's not a practical man. And so he leaves that to his, you know, his underlings, his followers to produce like practical exercises that you could actually do something with all of this mess. Some of them had some very prominent influence. Rudolf John Grosenben mm. took Lisa's work along with some other occultists, theosophists, and ended up with his 1930 book, The Zenith of Mankind. Right. Der Hochzeit der Menschheit. And with that, he also founded the Edda Society, which I'm pretty, I think we may have talked about that in our last episode. You know, that's the problem with doing an episode while oh, intoxicated, um, is I'm like, I think we mentioned that. I don't know. There were so many societies dedicated to, you know, various aspects of romantic nationalism that you really need a scorecard. And I honestly can't keep track of the Edda Society versus, you know, the Nordungs versus the Verfandi League. Versus you know. the Society for the Edda. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah. So this group, though, in particular, drew a lot of conservative nationalists, Was uh, talked a lot about eugenics, and then, of course, you combine all that with some awakening of ancient rune magic, and uh, that's going to res restore humanity to the Golden Age, And that's just a recipe for disaster. Right. And another guy was Friedrich Bernhard Malby, who began his career mostly as an astrologer, but began working intently with the runes in the 1920s. And to some extent, he was independent of, uh, of Liszt, although he was influenced by him. And he developed this system which involved holding your body in poses shaped like the rune letters, and he called it runen gymnastik. That sounds an awful lot like something else that was uh, published by Siegfried Kummer, who turns mm -hmm. Marby's system into runen yoga. Right. Um, also developed rune mudras, or hand positions, rune dances. So you mm -hmm. hold a rune position while you dance in a sparkle, spiral, spinning. And of course, because this is Germany in this era, you're nude. Mm -hmm. I would argue if you're dancing in a rune pose in a circle trying to invoke magic, that officially declares you naked. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, there was meditation involved as well. You were supposed to clear your mind and, you know, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream, as it were. Well, I mean, clearly these guys' heads were empty. Mm -hmm. So he also argued that yodeling was encoded runic energy. Right. Be it said that um, there's more to yodeling than just the yodele hihu that uh, you're probably thinking of. But yeah, in mountainous areas of Germany and Switzerland, there's this tradition of making these very loud falsetto calls that can be heard over long distances, you know, to call your cows or communicate with your fellows or things like that. And these were ostensibly, you know, carriers of rune power as well. And I've actually got some here. They don't sound like Yodelehi Hu, but they're things like, let me see. That's one of them. Ah, we can't do that. No, we can't do that again. We can't. Ben, we are going to deafen our listeners. We cannot do that again. Okay. All right. I'll stop. I'll stop. I, I apologize, guys, because I had to pull I had to pull the headphone out of my ear. Wow! Oh, I was yeah. actually not doing that into the mic. So now you know how easily that sound traveled. Hmm. Yes, and um, I apologize to our sound editor who has to make something out of that. Sorry about that. Jeez. Okay. Anyway, now you've all got a big dose of Armanen runic energy, courtesy of Siegfried Kumo. So then we have uh, Philip Stoff, who wrote uh, Runenhauser, who argued that the Armenian runes were encoded in the Foschwerk, or the half-timbering of old German buildings. And uh, he was the guy who took over the Guido von Lys society after Guido von Lys died. Right. You've seen, it was popular in other countries besides Germany, you can see it in some buildings in America that are kind of built in imitation of the style. Uh, in England, it's sometimes called Tudor style, where the uh, walls of a house are supported by these big wooden timbers. And the timbers are often dark, and the space between the timbers might be uh, you know, filled in with plaster and brick or something and painted a lighter color. So you have these you know, dark timber geometric shapes. And Stauff believed that these contained runes. And the idea was that if you lived in this house, the uh, shape of the rune letters in your timbering would energize your house with runic energy. And uh, he wrote, yeah, I've got a copy of his uh, Runenhauser where he... There's a lot of photos and drawings of old buildings in Germany, which he breaks down into Armand and rune shapes. So this reminds me of the whole idea when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're obsessed with, you know, with Guido von Liszt, everything looks like a rune. Right. And, you know, you know, any batch of straight lines that includes a lot of verticals and diagonals is going to yield, you know, rune shapes. I mean, if nothing else, you can find Isa 
you know, anywhere. Yeah. And then, of course, if you have angles to that, you know, the patterns are real. There's just no proof that they were actually built by people who still understood rune knowledge. You know, they were probably just considered ornamental. Easy to cut, easy to place. I mean, yeah. So then there was also a, of course, vegetarian nudist commune. <laughs> right. There were lots of these at the time, places where you could go and enjoy vegetarian cuisine and physical exercise and uh, what was called uh, light and air baths, meaning running around buck naked. And this one was called Breiva Bleak. And it was uh, close to Danzig on the Baltic coast. And it operated between 1919 and 1924. And you could go and get your fill of lists, ideas, and uh, try all of these things and also enjoy vegetarian cuisine and, you know, running around with your tallywhacker flapping around. Of course. Probably a good place to do that rune dance. <laughs> I don't know exactly when people started doing this, but there was apparently a tradition of rune sex magic where your position is supposed to uh, look like a rune letter. Oh, boy. So we go through all these different followers. The thing they all have in common is they all had this belief that the runes represented some sort of cosmic energy field or frequency. And so if the, if you could do the correct chant or hand posture or dance or whatever, you could tune in to this appropriate rune frequency. Right. And I'm just going to put this out here. That's half the books that I've ever read published by any kind of pop pagan publisher about runes. I mean, that is even now the number of books that I can pull out about runes that have this stuff in them is pretty overwhelming. Mm -hmm. Most of that comes back to Stephen Flowers slash Edward Thorson. Right. Who happened to find one of these old books on runes. I think it might have been Gorslaben. I don't remember off the bat, but he happened to find it in the stacks at the University of Texas, Austin in the late 70s. And from there, he finds out about the Armanen runes and was working on a manuscript on the Armanen system and then discovers the actual runes of the Elder Futhark and basically transfers a lot of the things that we've talked about to the Elder Futhark and writes this up in a manuscript called Futhark, a handbook of rune magic, which is one of the first two modern books on rune magic to come out. And unfortunately, the other one that came out at about the same time was Ralph Bloom's first book. Yeah, I noticed that going through Guido von Lee's stuff, there was a distinct lack of blank runes. Right, right. I will say, I, just to add to that, I, I had actually ordered a, a new set of wooden runes recently and put together by a company called The Healer's Way that does them. And they sent a little booklet with me. And uh, the very last thing, blank runes. Rune alphabets do not include a blank rune. Do not use it for rune casting. Just save it in case you lose one. Mm -hmm. So that made me happy. Right. Sound advice there. Yes. <laughs> and so Futhark contains a lot of exercises 
that are straight out of List, Kumar, and Malbi. And as far as we can really tell, we don't really know very much about magical uses of runes. I mean, we have the inscriptions themselves. They're maddeningly hard to interpret as to what they might mean, which is kind of the point. Actually, Ben, I think you're wrong on that. Yeah? We do have some idea that just this, as far as the magical use of runes, when you look at and you start kind of examining a lot of the more protective amulets, especially, or belt buckles, mm-hmm. a lot of the magic in rune was just they wrote it down. Mm-hmm. You know, Sven wrote on this belt buckle so it will protect him from damage. Mm-hmm. A lot of it was just, it seems to be from the reading of a lot of them, is just simply that the runes were, I wrote this down. I'm literate. Look at the magic. Right. But I mean, if the ancient Rune Brotherhood ever did dance the waltz in a circle while holding their arms outstretched naked as a jaybird, we don't know anything about it. No. It seems like it would be too cold in a lot of Scandinavia to uh, to do that, or too wet in like areas of Anglo-Saxon practice. Yeah, yeah. Haven't quite figured out how they reconciled, you know, the... 19th century German passion for nudity with the fact that it's freaking cold up there. Yeah. But, you know, in Futhark, you know, Edward Thorson advocates doing these exercises where you stand with your body in a rune shape and chant, you know, if it's Fehu, you stand, you know, with your arms up at a 45 degree angle, one a bit higher than the other. And you chant fa fe fi fo fu. I mean, a little slower than that, but you chant, you know, that's his, what he calls rune galder. And uh, if it's the village people, you're supposed to do the Y, the M, the C, and the A. Yeah, although that would have to be like Elhaj, Manaz, Kanaz, and, and Ansuj. Yeah, close enough. Yeah, it works. It definitely is a, a rehash to a great degree. So, Least has a huge impact then on kind of, you know, also true on, I would even argue just general neo-paganism with his rune ideas. All right. Well, Edred actually was there at the first all thing of the old AFA, the also true free assembly, which I think was what 1979. Was it? Yes. And he led some workshops on this. I've seen some very old photos of him leading workshops where everybody is, you know, holding these rune poses and presumably going, you know, fa fe fi fo fu or whatever the the rune happens to be. Are they wearing clothes? They are. They are in fact clothed. I mean, these are important questions. Mm -hmm. Right. Well, the AFA did have some skyclad rituals in its very early days. I've actually found proof of that in, um, the old runestone back issues that I've got. And yeah, they were, they were, some of them at least were known to run around naked back in the old days. But anyway, that's the conduit by which, you know, least and everybody gets into modern uh, heathen practice. Well, in addition to his influence on things like the Edda Society, which eventually go on to also influence influence Elsa Christensen and 
A-Rod Mills. So mm-hmm. his fingers are, his fingerprints are all over a lot of stuff. Right. And it's, it's definitely, you know, it, it's an interesting thing, I think, to ponder, especially when we are examining our, especially when we are examining our own biases and our own practices within heathenry mm-hmm. to know that a lot of the stuff here is just straight MUS. MUS? Yeah, made up. <laughs> oh, right. Got it. Well, you know, there's UPG, unverified personal gnosis. Right. There's verified group gnosis. And then there's MUS. <laughs> I see. Okay. That's a that's a very <laughs> useful term. Yeah, it's it, this is a lot of MUS. Right. And it comes out of this romantic nationalist background, which is very far on the far right and was not Nazi because the Nazis, once they actually got power, suppressed it. Siegfried Kummel disappeared and Malby actually did time in concentration camp. So what you're telling me is they did not see that coming. Yeah, they did not see that coming. And, you know, Hitler had no patience with any of this stuff, but they were able to use it. It was one of many things that they were able to draw on. And, you know, they'd go along with the people chanting runes and all of that until they got power and then they could take care of them later. Right. So, yeah, List is not a Nazi proper, but the ideas that he's getting, especially the anti-Semitism and, you know, the subordination of the individual to the folk and the desire for the Stalke vom Oben, the, the strong one from above, you know, that was shared by an awful lot of people. That was very much in the air at the time that the real Nazi party was getting its feet under itself. That was, you know, the guy who, if you remember Tarn Hari, the uh, huckster who uh, claimed that uh, he remembered the same ancestral Armanen priesthood that Guido List did, Tanhari actually published some uh, pamphlets about the swastika that were overwritten, sorry, not overwritten, underwritten, paid for by this guy who was also one of Hitler's mentors back in the day. So you can find these personal connections. And Nazism, I don't think, is compatible with heathenism. And I don't think it's really compatible with what these folks were doing. It wasn't really what they wanted, but it all comes out of the same circles. It all comes out of the same cultural background. And that's not a bad thing to keep in mind. So I'm just kind of going to put the final note on, on Guido von Liszt. All right. So in um, 1917, there was a biography that was published of Liszt. And then during World War I, Liszt predicted that there would be victory for the central powers of Germany and Austria-Hungary. And uh, he got that from a vision, of course, that he had. So by 1918, his health was really declining. There were food shortages because of the war. And in the spring of 1919, at the age of 71, Least and his wife go off to recuperate and go hang out with some of his uh, sycophants at a manor house owned by a List Society patron in uh, Brandenburg, Germany. 
However, before he could get there, he was too exhausted and was diagnosed with a lung inflammation and he deteriorated pretty quickly and died in Berlin on the 17th of May, 1919. He was cremated and then was interred at the Vienna Central Cemetery. And then to uh, speaking of followers, his official obituary was written by Philip Stoff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he really couldn't have been a Nazi regardless because he was dead. But he definitely was able to to do this. And we got some pretty interesting pictures. I mean, for good or bad, he was an interesting dude. Mm -hmm. I have to admire that he he bought in at a young age and stuck with it. Even if he did write 700 goddamn page books in impenetrable black letter German. Well, you know, we can't all be winners at everything. Right. Listeners, I really hope you appreciate that because I plowed through that as, as best I could. And it took me several hours. And, you know, if you really want to show your support for the eye strain that I got and the headache that I was suffering, you might consider supporting us on Patreon, for example. That would definitely make me feel a lot better. And, you know, our Patreon is patreon.com forward slash heathen history. Mm. As soon as I get the episode back from the editor, we post it to Patreon. So you get it a week early, usually, sometimes a little shorter than that, depending on, you know, if it's a two hour episode like the last one you get access to our exclusive heathen history Facebook group where we have really weird discussions and we answer questions and there's also other freebies. Uh, in fact, I just mailed out a heathen history shirt to one of our patrons. Oh yes. Actually you have a heathen history shirt. It's at my house. I just keep, you know, social distancing and kind of. Right. I'll wear it with pride when we can. Yes. And if you were interested in a Heathen History shirt, we have our logo shirts. We even have new Wasail Y'all shirts. Links for that are along with our show notes and where we cite our sources are on our website, heathenhistory.com, along with links to Facebook, Twitter, and we're all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Taking over the internet one side at a time. Except I still can't figure out, like, TikTok. Mm -hmm. I'm old. Okay. Yeah. I actually I always like take it off better than, than TikTok. Okay. Yeah. Did you just make a Kesha? Who wait, who are you? You just made a Kesha joke. I'm confused. And my my knowledge of pop culture is very scattered. Let's just put it that way. <laughs> At least you didn't mention Timber. So yeah, so that was Queen of Unleashed. Uh next time we're gonna be talking about the Thule Society, Theosophy. And all kinds of contemporary related stuff that all kind of builds on this. Is this the one where we get to talk about the uh, blondes and male supremacists getting attacked by sodomitic apes? I don't know. Is it? Well, you want to talk about Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got to talk about Ariosophy if we're going to do yes. that. So we'll talk about sodomitic apes, which I'm sure is really going to draw in the uh, the listeners yes so with that being said mm -hmm. i can never remember what i'm supposed to say but i'm supposed to acknowledge our theme music 
yes our theme music is happy viking by roller music mm-hmm. so guys just bear with us i'm sorry this is a little scattered we're trying uh this whole not being in the same studio is a little weird so but i will say for the heathen history podcast i'm lauren and i'm ben Wassail, y'all. y'all.